trying to say that this is like a feminist jail is about assimilating feminism, assimilating the like radical potential of feminism and the like dreams that feminism might have into this kind of project and making feminism subject to something like incarceration. I mean, there's a reason the term carceral feminism exists, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's forced things like this. Patrons, thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do any of this without you. To support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, and request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. I'm so excited today to be joined by two guests to talk about what are sometimes called carceral humanist reform projects or reformist reforms, which are projects that under the guise of, quote, addressing needs or creating humane replacement for incarceration only truly strengthen the gateways of imprisonment and the sites where it happens. Our first guest, Mon M., is an abolitionist organizer and member of No New Jails Network. Mon is also the author of a recent op-ed arguing against so-called humane jails published in Teen Vogue called Feminist Jail Proposals Contribute to Mass Incarceration. Mon, welcome to the death panel. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here today. And our second guest is Diana Joy. Diana is a prison industrial complex and coercive psych abolitionist who organizes with Survived and Punished New York. Diana, welcome to the death panel. Hi, thanks so much for having me too. I'm so glad to have you both here today to have a discussion about the harms of carceral humanist reform projects and also how to recognize these kinds of reforms for what they are when they're proposed. And I'm excited for us to talk together about some of the lessons that we can learn from past movements who have named and fought against reformist reforms and persistent carceral logics throughout many different campaigns in the past. Um, But to start us off, I think it would be great to ground the discussion in this recent proposal for such a reform in New York City. Um, This summer, we saw a wave of prominent feminists come out in support of a proposal to build a new women's jail in Harlem. In May, the New York Times published a piece by their critic, uh, Ginia Belafonte, called What Would a Feminist Jail Look Like?, where she said that feminist jail would be a place for healing. That one was rough to read. Um, On June 15th, Gloria Steinem wrote a public letter urging the New York governor and New York City Mayor Eric Adams to act on this proposal, saying that the proposed jail supported the political aims of the feminist movement and that the goal was to bring dignity, safety and justice to people. And basically, the plan is to open a so-called humane women's jail facility in a recently closed facility on 110th Street called Lincoln Correctional. And it's framed as part of this sort of larger humanitarian uh, mission to close Rikers in some ways. It's framed as sort of a, a necessary response to conditions within other facilities. And this is a sort of, you know, very insidious proposal. And it's something that 
is not a new proposal. This is something that over decades, there are all sorts of things like this where you see, okay, we've got overcrowding in, in XYZ facility. And rather than questioning why, you know, maybe that facility is overcrowded, the campaign becomes, okay, so like, what do we need to build to deal with this overflow? And the idea is sort of, if you build it, it will be filled. And that's sort of one of the logics that I think we're going to be talking about today and trying to um, expose. So Mon, I wondered if you wouldn't mind sort of starting us off by talking a little bit about New York City's proposal to open this new jail for, quote, women and gender expansive people that they are calling the Women's Center for Justice. And then after that, maybe we can talk about how this jail sort of continues carceral violence and is not a solution, just more cages. Yeah, definitely. And thanks for the introduction. I think a good place to start is at Rikers, uh, which is the notorious penal colony that communities in New York have been trying to shut down um, and resisting in other ways for well over 50 years, basically since it was created as a response to another more notorious penal colony that existed before it, Blackwell's Island. One of the facilities on Rikers is the Rose M. Singer Center, which is also informally known as Rosie's. And Rosie's, it was designed specifically for women and later for what they say are gender expansive people. So designed as a holding cage for people of marginalized genders. And Rosie's, like um, the rest of Rikers and like many of the other jails that have operated in New York City, including the borough-based jails, including the Women's House of Detention, which closed um, several decades ago. But Rosie's, like all of these jails, is overcrowded, like you said, but just plain crowded. Um, It's in disrepair. People inside it face a ton of neglect. There are, if the conditions are abject and they're really not defensible in any way. And so the proposal for the Women's Center for Justice, a jail ostensibly designed for women and gender expansive people, which is their language in New York City, I think comes out of a genuine desire to see Rosie's closed and to move beyond Rosie's and to have other ways of taking care of people. But I think it provides a misguided answer to the question of how to best support people who are inside Rosie's by saying, instead of freeing them and providing care and support and services that they might need outside of jail, a better jail is where they might be able to receive these services because a better jail might be one that, you know, has more art (laughs) and has more social workers and has less correctional officers and has more space inside. And I think One of the reasons that these proposals are so complicated is because no one wants to be in the position of advocating against something that might be nicer for people who are having to deal with such terrible conditions. But when we're talking about proposals like this one for a a women's jail, for a feminist uh, or so-called trauma-informed jail, for a therapeutic jail, we still have to see it as part of a larger system of incarceration and criminalization that don't really undo the reasons that criminalization is happening in the first place. Right. I really appreciate the way that you frame that as looking at the wrong problem and trying to solve the wrong problem. And this, you know, ultimately is a kind of reform that it seems at face value, like, okay, we have conditions in this facility that are abhorrent. We need to stop that. But the answer that is always seemingly proposed is just to build new facilities, not, you know, why are people in there in the first place? 
Diana, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you see these carceral logics reflected in the proposal itself to instead of working towards delivering care to be sort of branding um, prisons as a site of care within the proposal's framework itself. Yeah. So what always frustrates me about these policies is that rather than, like Mon was just saying, you know, asking the question of how to get care to people without incarceration, it's always focused on how can prisons and jails be more treatment focused, be more, you know, and it's just this, like, that's the thing is this carceral logic is this focus on all this money that goes into policing and prisons and jails and incarceration rather than going into things that would make these things more obsolete and less necessary. Like there's a part of me that's like, well, fund mental health treatment, you know, non-coercive mental health treatment for people before they wind up in prison. You know, if someone is dealing with trauma, find ways to help them process that trauma before something happens that causes them to be incarcerated for reacting to that. Or my area of organizing is with criminalized survivors, with people who've experienced gender-based violence and then have um, done things to survive that have caused them to be criminalized and incarcerated. So, for example, if someone is living, this is where the carceral logic comes in. If someone is living in an abusive relationship, their partner is abusive and they're living with them, and they want to find housing, new housing away from their abusive partner so they're safer. They must they, they in order in New York City, in order to access that housing, they have to file a police report that their partner is abusive. And not all people want to do that for various good reasons. A lot of people don't want to interact with the police for very good reasons. And that's one of the things that happens is that we rather than just give people housing, you know, give people housing, just housing first with no conditions, with no rules about, oh, you have to go to treatment, you have to take meds, you have to go to the police, you know, just give people housing, give people access to communities, access to food, to health care, to mental health care. But it, instead, all this money just comes at the back end when people are already locked up. And that's always where the money goes. It's always like when they're incarcerated, then we'll get them help. And it's just, it's frustrating. It's just, it feels always so like this could all be, this just done backwards, I guess right. is the best way to put it. No, I think that's a great way to put it, that the money's all being spent almost at the wrong part of the process by the state. The state prefers to, you know, invest in building carceral facilities than in invest in distributing resources for survival. And this actually maybe brings us to one of the sort of big myths of this proposal in New York specifically, which has been billed as... Um, quote unquote, gender responsive, and that it's actually uh, being sold as specifically intended as a project to keep survivors safe from their abusers by putting them in this new humane facility. Now, this kind of framework of this being um, for someone's own good, I think often hides the fact that like a lot of people in this scenario who are going to be in this facility are people who are in pretrial detention. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. 
when we're talking about people who are being held pretrial, which is not everyone in Rikers, but it is the majority of people held inside Rikers in the borough based jails in New York, it means that they have not been convicted of anything. And that trend would persist for um, this jail as well. And I, I think that's really important because it just sort of this idea of like the the sort of women's jail being like specifically this intervention to protect survivors and keep survivors free from their abusers, you know, is in this context of also pretrial detention. And the decision to enforce pretrial detention is something that in and of itself could be a, a site for these, you know, a, a different type of reform. But in the sort of policy landscape that we're working with, Frequently, what we'll see is instead of anything that's seeking to sort of address why jails are full of people being held for pretrial detention and why do we actually need to sort of hold on to people in this capacity, instead, all that money is sort of pumped into, well, okay, like sort of how do we, uh, you know, as you guys were joking, like how do we get better art on the walls or make sure to sort of have this facility, like reach these kind of aesthetic normative standards that have very much to do with almost putting people on the outside at ease that they aren't being abusive. And we know that like any cage and any jail and any prison in and of itself is abusive and harmful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this that's yes, that's the thing. The idea that like there's Monica Cosby, who is was is a criminalized survivor she is a survivor of intimate partner violence who was incarcerated has basically said that the violence of the state and that the state enacts on people especially women who are incarcerated is equal to the violence of intimate partner violence that's the thing it's like you know the idea that they're protecting people from abuse is laughable given that incarceration and confinement is abusive in and of itself and traumatic in and of itself. That's the other big thing. They want, they're talking about healing trauma. You can't heal trauma in a traumatic situation and in, in an unsafe situation, which is what confinement and incarceration is. And that's the thing. It's like this is a different form of abuse, but it, it has the same, the same effect. It's just abuse that's legitimized by the state. Right. Because, you know, I think what we're sort of talking around right now is that in a lot of these cases, right, like the whatever initial harm that someone's experiencing, like obviously putting them into a situation of confinement while they have to wait whatever process of going through their trial process, dealing with the kind of like state aftermath of whatever uh, reason that they've been criminalized, like throughout this entire time, right, we make these decisions to sort of confine people that we say is out of safety, right? And what it does is it creates not only sort of trauma of its own making, but then this kind of like almost humanitarian mission to sort of rescue people from like the bad guards at that one facility or this one bad facility. And it allows us to sort of paint, you know, Rikers itself as the problem and not the conditions of confinement itself. You know, when we're sort of pushing against some of these myths, what are other um, sort of rhetorical frameworks that tend to pop up in this situation? Yeah, I have a, a couple thoughts. One, and this speaks directly to what Diana was saying, is that abuse just doesn't cancel out abuse. So if you've got harm happening to someone, compiling on the trauma that they've already experienced does not cancel out their initial trauma. So we already are in this position where we need to think beyond whether incarceration is even capable of canceling out that trauma. And that's where we should be beginning. But the other kind of framework is that these jails, um, we've talked a little bit about like more space, more green areas, better, 
better design. And these kinds of jails take a lot of inspiration from like Scandinavian models of incarceration, which typically tend to be lauded as being more humane and more beautiful. And recently, well, by recently in the last five years, one of the most kind of celebrated examples of that kind of jailing in the U.S. was Las Colinas Detention Facility, which opened in 2014 and actually inspired similar projects around the country. And Las Colinas, where primarily women are incarcerated, has seen multiple deaths of people who are criminalized there since it opened, since 2014. And so the story of Las Colinas, I think, is important because here's a jail that was designed to be more humane, that was supposed to be responding to the needs of specifically incarcerated women and has produced immense trauma in just eight years. And I think it kind of gets at this idea that survivors are going to receive the care they need inside the jail because we have survivors who are self-harming and, you know, committing suicide inside jails. Um, one of the other myths that I think is associated with this one that's kind of parallel is that basically right now in New York City, they're trying to make sure that corrections officers are not associated with the Women's Justice Center. I don't know if they've successfully managed to make it so that there won't be any DOC staffing at the Women's Justice Center. But even then, just having social workers and having nurses doesn't inside the jail doesn't actually make it um, not a jail anymore. I think we've talked in this conversation already about the fact that because so many people are being held pretrial, it means that they're still moving through the system. When they come out, they've been arrested. They have a record. They've had interactions with the criminal punishment system. They potentially have fees associated with the time that they spent going through this process or with incarceration. Maybe they were taken away from their families. Maybe they're going to be punished by the family policing systems for the fact that they went through this process. So even if there is to be a better jail, so-called, or a more humane jail, it doesn't actually change the fact that the jail is still part of a larger system where people are still being coercively criminalized and still facing the repercussions of ever actually being criminalized in the first place. So from what I gather from hearing some people from Beyond Rosies who are the folks, some of the folks behind pushing for this women's jail say is that they're the only place that there would be guards would be um, the perimeter outside of the building, which would still be guards, corrections officers out on the building. And the other thing I want to say just quickly about social workers is that they can be very carceral. Social work was actually born in a very carceral role during the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. You know, they were eugenicists for many of them. They were there to kind of quell um, unrest among workers during the Industrial Revolution. And then also, I mean, I'm not going to get into much detail, but I've been in psychiatric treatment centers where there was it was staffed by by social workers and, you know, nurses and stuff like that. And I some of those were against my will and they were. Just they felt they were very carceral feeling. They were just like I like I said just in a panel when I was talking about this, that the turn of the key in a psychiatric setting is no different than the turn of the key in a jail setting. It still locks you in. And like 
that's the thing, you know, being locked into a treatment center isn't going to make it is going to give you the same issues that we would have being locked in a jail, although this is a jail. No, absolutely. And I think you point to a really important thing, which is that, you know, we can say that these facilities need to be, you know, made more humane and that people in them need care all we want, but there's no amount of delivery of care or shuffling of the cards, you know, in terms of who's technically employed to, you know, administer that care that makes giving care in the context of carcerality um, actually count as care. And and there's a, you know, there's one of those refrains that like, I think is one of the myths that that just makes me so furious where people are like, well, you know, some people, once they go to prison and jail, at least they're getting care in there. At least there's access to medical care once you're incarcerated, which is just, you know, ignorant. Um, but, you know, this is a kind of really common idea that like people who once they are, you know, confined, whether it's uh, in a psychiatric facility, whether it's in a prison or a jail, that that there's some sort of aspect of someone being there for their own good and for the good of the community and this this kind of process of, of separating who belongs and who doesn't. And, you know, I think that kind of naturally brings us to the question, which is an obvious one, but it's really good and important to discuss and sort of say out loud, which is Gloria Steinem, you know, in her her letter calling for this uh, feminist jail proposal says that, you know, humane jails are part of the project of a sort of feminist movement. And, you know, is it really possible to have a feminist jail? I guess where I'll begin is that part of the reason that it's important for systems of death making, policing, criminalization, incarceration, militarism to incorporate these like kind of progressive narratives is because that's how they continue to innovate and continue to re-legitimize their application for like changing social and cultural circumstances. So what I mean by that is that it's important for New York City to meet the ways in which trans people, gender nonconforming people, intersex people, um, cis women are being criminalized, uh, abortion seekers, mothers, uh, refugees, you know, are being criminalized in the city with the new technologies. And like I see the proposals for women's jails that are more humane or for so-called trauma-informed jails or for like jails that have um, better mental health support as ways of innovating around incarceration so that it's applicable to new communities that are being criminalized. And obviously, gendered punishment has always existed. These communities have always been criminalized, in particular, Mm -hmm. the ones that are Black and disabled and poor. But I think trying to say that this is like a feminist jail is about assimilating feminism, assimilating the like radical potential of feminism and the like dreams that feminism might have into this kind of project and making feminism subject to something like incarceration. It's a way of like co-opting and diluting the demands that people have been making for hundreds of years around gender justice and disability justice and making it so that incarceration is seen as like a relevant solution to the problems people have raised. So I say that to say, can jails be feminist? is like already the, you know, once we start asking that question, we're already kind of like meeting that co-optation where it is Mm -hmm. uh, rather than like 
we're not even having that conversation. We like, that was never, this was like never relevant. Like we were never talking about this kind of feminism. Yeah. Like nobody, nobody wants your feminist jail. Like, please stop. Yeah. And so like, it's like the terrain on which we're even engaging is like already been conceded because now we're suddenly talking about feminist jails, but also more kind of like moving on from that, like kind of meta level, like also in New York city, for example, Family policing still exists. The criminalization of sex workers still happens. Mothers are being incarcerated. Abortion seekers are still being criminalized. Trans people are still having difficulty like accessing the care they need, medical care, free care. And so this idea that the city would suddenly be able to like slap a feminist label onto something like a jail when there's, you know, mar- people of marginalized genders being criminalized and um, oppressed in other ways is also laughable because if you, if if like the city is feminist, why not invest in all of these other ways that feminism has always demanded and actually support people in all these ways? There's just like a level of hypocrisy here <laughs> that is like, OK, we, we can't even we can't even talk about it like this let's start talking about decriminalization of things like survival um like Dan was talking about yeah and i just want to add i mean there's a reason the term carceral feminism exists Mm -hmm. you know and it's forced things like this and you know there's always been tension between carceral feminists and uh other feminists many abolition feminists black and that's the other thing too that we really need to acknowledge that this is all very rooted anti-blackness and enableism by this and in the combination of the two because they can't be pulled apart you know and everything mon said is true like you know sex workers don't need treatment they need either the ability to do their work as safely as possible or an alternative way that they can make as much money you know if that's what they want trans people don't need treatment in a jail they need medical care then they need protection from you know danger from other other people in the state you know yeah and that's the thing for carceral feminists you know i i'm trying to remember um what the phrase is i think it's um if you're a ham if you're a nail every i forget what it is but whatever but you know if you're a hammer everything looks like a nail nail yeah Yeah. (laughs) so but that's like basically the idea with like you know if you're carceral feminist every solution looks like a jail or prison yeah absolutely i mean it's this this kind of idea of of looking at a problem and only seeing a carceral solution to it, right? Instead of seeing so many other urgently needed and like available solutions and different kinds of like interventions, we have this kind of social preference to um, steer our policy towards like congregate settings, towards economy of of scale, towards this kind of like carceral protectionism, which can come out as, you know, feminism, as carceral ableism, carceral sanism. These are all just, you know, as you're saying, Diana, like part of overall sort of a structure of white supremacy and and a sort of culture of in the United States in particular, I think trying to, you know, be very deliberate about who's sort of allowed as part of the we in society and who's not. And and ultimately, you know, these conversations, the kind of like feminist jail proposal or these kinds of like these reforms as we're talking about that aren't necessarily like actually going to um result in like a reduction in the harm that people experience when they pass through being criminalized. Whereas something like immediately ending pretrial detention would result materially in like a 
vastly different landscape for people once they're criminalized. Can we talk about sort of what some of the what some other things would be other than, uh, you know, just making more jails that we can do instead? Because I think our political will is very limited by this sort of carceral protectionist impulse that is, you know, very longstanding. And one of the things that I think is sort of almost key towards both like maintaining the way that the state sort of funds itself, right? Like the the carceral apparatus is really important, especially in terms of state financing and, you know, getting sort of money, moving money around. But beyond these kinds of like structural components, and we're talking about, you know, actually like what people are experiencing, what are their lives, um, and what are the problems we're trying to solve for the people who are incarcerated, not like the state's problems that it's solving. I think so often, you know, reforms that are proposed are way more concerned with how the state is going to come out at the end of the day than the people who are going to pass through it. Um, so I'd love for us to talk a little bit about sort of what alternatives actually would be that um, would not fall into this category of reformist reforms or these kinds of, um, you know, carceral humanist projects where the the idea is essentially to take something that is harmful and rebranded as not harmful. Well, one that's very big for me that I already mentioned before a little bit is um, it's called Housing First, and it's a um, philosophy behind housing, uh, especially for folks who are unhoused because of mental health or um, substance use issues. And the idea is, is that instead of hang, hanging their housing um, on whether or not they go into treatment or take their meds or whatever, the idea is you just give people housing and then allow them to decide from there what they want to do. And it's been found to work that housing, like that's the thing, the you know, that ha- giving people housing just to live in helps people just regulate and just, you know, become more stabilized. Um, I mean, housing for all is also just, you know, the broader term of it. And that would be great. You know, and, you know, people always go, well, how will you pay for it? I'm always like, there's billions of dollars going into police and prisons. I mean, rather than putting, you know, paying to incarcerate people, pay to, you know, them to have an apartment. And then just building up peer mental health supports, but not the professionalized peer mental health supports that, you know, like with everything else, the psychiatric industrial complex tried is trying to co-opt that. But like real grassroots peer programs like Project Let's or Fire Week Collective, where folks can um, support each other through things. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. I'm going to let Mon go. Yeah. I mean, there's so much mm-hmm. in what you said, Diana. Um, I think I'm completely agree with like, first, just, you know, having housing and having free housing and having support for unhoused people that like respects their autonomy. Um, But I think also what's important about what you said, Diana, is that and I think this is something that actually Liat Ben-Mosh, who's been on death panel, has raised, which is like, what, what the problem with like, reformist jail, programs, these carceral humanist programs is that they ask like what to do with the mentally unwell they ask what to do with the disabled what to do with the homeless rather than what to do about housing Mm -hmm. or what to do about hospitals or what to do about essentially you know these the infrastructure that people need and i think what diana said about housing definitely got at that also i think 
you know, Diana and I are not policymakers and, and, and neither are you, B. So it's almost like one of the kind of fundamental demands that abolitionists, I think, have around proposals like this is that the people who are responsible for making decisions like this, like, don't need to pretend like there aren't there is an expertise that could be applied in other ways, mm-hmm. like ending pretrial detention. I mm-hmm. know, you know, a lot about how I might like organize my neighbors to take action against this, but I'm not writing bills. I'm not writing legislation. And so to some extent, that's not to say like there aren't alternatives there and there aren't ideas, but that like the the demand is also for the people who position themselves as the the power brokers and as the mm-hmm. progenitors of ideas and legislation to like stop being ignorant about the <laughs> massive radical potential that exists and 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 to stop being yeah like being willful in their ignorance um and the the third thing is that there isn't it's not a one to one thing as much as like abolitionists have done incredible uh, and and actually non-abolitionists too, but like so many people have done such an incredible job of like elevating historical models of non-carceral responses, as well as like community and peer support models and like just alternatives to how we currently deal with harm and abuse and violence. As much as like the work that has been done is important and websites like One Million Experiments are great resources for how people are trying to do these things. There is no alternative to like systems of torture. Like we're not really trying to create like, yes, I believe in like doing plenty of things to keep people cared for, including free education, free housing, free health care and all of these things on demand for whoever needs them. And I'm like, in some cases, like this women's jail, there is, they should not build it. They should free them all and they should provide care for the people who were harmed in the process of being incarcerated and then released and then being shuffled around these jails during a pandemic. And even if, even if the city does not somehow come up with robust mental health supports or you know suddenly have free housing and that the, all of these things even if that's not the case people should still be freed from mm-hmm. rosies mm-hmm. like one one of these is not yes. contingent on the other and right. so yes i completely agree with like we need to be coming up with we need to be creative and experimenting and coming up with ways of dealing with harm and when it comes to thinking about like jailing even this jail right like the women's jail that's being proposed is a is supposed to be a alternative right to what's inside Rikers and so like if we're constantly like cr- cr- proposing like the alternative to the alternative we we risk kind of being limiting our own imagination and so simultaneously to organizing around like demands for free housing and decriminalization of things like survival and sex work and for people who use drugs I think there's also just this idea that like people should be free and we might not have all the things to take care of them, but people should still be free. Absolutely. And like, you know, and like to build on what Mon was saying, like, you know, Eric Adams keeps talking about reopening the asylums and that's (laughs) not, I mean, I I spent some time in a state hospital, like right before it closed in the nineties. And that's not a solution to what's, I mean, it was just, you know, a warehouse, you know, and it's just, it's still locking people up, you know, and like, I agree with Mon, people deserve to be free. So, I mean, the, the, the alternatives aren't always good ones. So better have no alternatives than 
bad ones. I mean, I think you you both are speaking to, you know, essentially what I think is one of the most important takeaways from, you know, what's going on in New York right now, which isn't just going on in New York. This is something where there there are proposals like these crop up all the time. Um, you know, the the decision that we have made over the years to sort of prioritize these economies of scale when we're quote unquote dealing with populations that are sort of not welcome in whatever capacity, whether that's an immigration facility, an asylum, a state hospital school, or a prison or a jail or wherever, a nursing home, you know, there are all these locales where, um, you know, essentially the same strategy of targeting elimination and removal occurs as the kind of policy landscape. Like these are the options that are available and we can do it on this sliding scale of like awful to incredibly fucked up. And that's kind of like the entire political horizon. And so, you know, if you're like, okay, I'm, you know, I want to like become an abolitionist, like you should not be looking to uh, necessarily like policy proposals for something that's going to reflect like your actual goals. And I think this is, you know, something, Diane, I appreciate you bringing up specifically the asylum system, because this is something that, you know, for a long time, I think, Many people who have worked around decarceration specifically, um, you know, this has been a real frustration that that generations upon generations of organizers and thinkers have all grappled with, which is, you know, fundamentally like the state is interested only in rebranding the institutions Um and sort of transforming them. It, it's it's always funny to me to go back to um, Andrew Skull's decarceration because I think he gives this great, really important sort of definition of decarceration right at the beginning. Um, this is from the second edition from 1984, but it was originally published um, in the 70s. And decarceration, you know, uh, this is something that, you know, Gloria Steinem says that the this this uh, feminist jail proposal is going to sort of be part of a goal of decarceration. And as we're saying, like, yes, technically it is because decarceration is a strategy. It's one tool. And it specifically refers to um, how the state sort of interfaces with these things. So just to read Andrew Skull's uh, definition, decarceration is shorthand for a state-sponsored policy of closing down asylums, prisons, and reformatories. He continues, much of the time, it appears as if policymakers simply do not know what will happen when their schemes are put into effect, nor do they seem concerned to find out. And so this is kind of the this this narrative that we see repeat over the years um, of sort of like, oh, there's a problem with this one prison. It's horrible there. It's time to reform it. Let's make it better by opening a brand new shiny prison and sort of repurposing these old buildings. I mean, this is a process of um, you know, essentially kind of creating these systems, right, that um, evade uh, accountability over the decades as they're rebranded. And fundamentally, these sort of warehousing models are never going to give people care no matter how much we say they're for care. And so one of the things you do in your piece, Mon, that I really appreciate, the piece for Teen Vogue that I talked about at the top, is you really get into, you know... <laughs> What exactly sort of do we mean when we say decarceration versus abolition? And I wondered if you wouldn't mind sort of speaking on that for a second, because I think 
if you aren't necessarily someone who's doing this work, and if you aren't someone who, for example, maybe is like deeply into looking at the history of institutionalization or something like that, you might hear decarceration and think, oh, that's closing prisons and jails. But, uh, you know, as we were saying, sort of this specifically refers to when the state is sort of making policies in order to do this. And so therefore, there are these important ways to sort of understand how decarceration in and of itself should not necessarily be the kind of like goal that we see ourselves as as finding uh, comrades through, because there are many types of decarceration. And some of them, as we're sort of saying, and as we've been outlining, are not necessarily going to result in what we want, which is to free people. Yeah, I, I think um, I think that's a really good and like very, very central question, I think, around all of these proposals. And at the end of the day, we're all, we many uh, many people uh, who see like the mass incarceration system, the criminal punishment system for what it is, this like system of like coercion and caging and murder and torture that takes from like the legacies of settler colonialism and enslavement. Many people see that and then differ on what to do about it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that like I. I think I talked about in that article and and I think a lot of abolitionists talk about is that the how of how we close down jails and prisons and what we do is just as important as like doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, the ends do not always justify the means. And so when we're t- talking about decarceration, if we're not talking about, um, like you mentioned B earlier, just, you know, getting rid of pretrial detention. If we're not talking about freeing people point blank, if we're not talking about having people housed and decriminalizing homelessness um, and we're not talking about like safe supply and things like this, then we're not really talking about the the root of why people are even going to jail and why people are even being criminalized. We're only talking about jail itself. And so I think it's important for people who, you know, care about decarceration and care about shrinking down jails and prisons, which is something I also care about, to be able to discern between certainly like reformist reforms, which expand the prison industrial complex and non-reformist reforms, which shrink it, but also between the like kind of long-term vision and what we're ultimately kind of fighting for and the like short-term wins and uh, results. So one, I think example of this might be like abortion, right? Abortion is now more criminalized and reproductive autonomy in general is more uh, constrained than it's been in a long time. And it wouldn't make sense to suddenly start talking if, you know, if people who are seeking abortions were being arrested and jailed pretrial inside your local county jail, it, it doesn't make sense to be like, oh, let's put them in a, in a different jail where they're going to get therapy for why they were incarcerated for this in the first place. Mm-hmm. That is not a conversation we're going to be having, even if that actually gets them out of a different of a like a worse setting. It's also not it do, also doesn't make sense to be like, let's take them out of the jail and then have them in a series of programs where they think about why they were seeking abortion in the first place. <laughs> That doesn't make sense. That's still a carceral logic. It's still punishing exactly. someone. Exactly. Yeah. And in, in fact, we should be fighting for reproductive autonomy for all kinds of people. And if we're not having that conversation, then like 
the rest of it, even if it's decarcerating, is not actually challenging the fundamental problem, which is that people don't have access to reproductive health care. And that's how I think about like some of the differences between decarceration as reform and decarceration as abolition. And like I say in the article, decarceration isn't always interchangeable with abolition, especially when it's invested in the project of legitimizing the police and legitimizing um, psychiatric care and facilities, legitimizing jails, because it's not seeking to like get rid of them. It's just seeking to shrink them. Right. Absolutely. Diana, did you want to build on that or add anything? Yeah, just, I mean, that's the thing. Decarceration has a place, but the goal of decarceration is not of abolition. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, or, you know, or like of people who are decarceral, but not abolitions. It's not abolition. And, you know, they still feel that prisons and jails have a place. And, you know, us, we, Mon and I as abolitionists don't. And one of the things that actually really frustrates me sometimes is that some of the folks who are in favor of this women's jail call themselves abolitionists. And Mm -hmm. I was on a panel and there was a woman there who was doing that and saying, this is just, you know, we just need to, um, you know, there's a nuance. We need to take these roads to abolition. And it was hard for me. I just like I did not want to get into like a war of words on this panel. But um, that's the thing. It's like. All right, if you're decarcerational, decarcerationist, call yourself decarcerationist. Don't call yourself an abolitionist. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. And then like, yes, and there are different aspects to decarceration as, you know, Mon was talking about. Right. And I, I think it's important to sort of think about, you know, decarceration itself as a kind of strategy that, um, you know, as we're saying, like is specifically talking about closing institutions in collaboration with the state. Um, because if we think about the sort of history of deinstitutionalization, for example, there are a lot of myths out there about what exactly happened when institutions closed. One of them is that institutions closed, but the truth is actually that they didn't. And this is something we talk about on Death Panel a lot. We did a recent episode of this, uh, about this with Megan Linton, um, talking about her show, Invisible Institutions, which is in the context of Canada, but we, you know, talked about the Canadian deinstitutionalization context and the U.S. context and the kind of parallels there. And one of the parallels is this consistent and constant process of sort of rebranding or or making these larger institutions slightly smaller and trying to find ways to sort of let people out, but only the people that, you know, we're really sure are going to be totally fine. And there's this kind of, you know, uh, hierarchy that's imposed in in a lot of sort of decarceral projects in in that vein, right? But there's there is decarceration as a strategy towards uh, actual institutional closure. Whether or not that's actually been employed by the state and whether or not the laws that we've called decarceral policies have resulted in decarceration, I think is like a conversation that's very much up for debate. And I would argue that they haven't. But for a long time, this has been a kind of public health strategy almost, you know, often advocated for from the perspective of professionals. And as we sort of see it, I think, you know, a lot of people hear decarceration and they think like, okay, great, like institutions will be closed. And it's important to sort of pull back the curtain and actually look at what 
exactly they're talking about because as you're saying diana like there's a kind of tendency for people to to collapse these things and say that they're one and the same when they're absolutely not and i think some people can you know start with decarceration as a goal and and become an abolitionist maybe but there's no sort of guarantee that there's that immediate overlap but even in this proposal of the feminist jail um there were institutional uh like groups like the group at columbia um what was it the columbia justice center that was involved yeah, in this. The Columbia, the Columbia Justice Lab. Right. And they had received funding to like develop abolitionist curriculum, but also are like part of the, the group that's like developing this proposal, right? Yeah. Well, so <laughs> they uh, it's a it's a little murky because their name is on the official report that pushes for such a center. And they've also said publicly that they are not affiliated with it, but then their name is still on the report. And so students at Columbia have been um, calling on the Columbia Justice Lab to publicly and vocally disavow the the proposal. Right. So and, and there's there's a kind of I think um, there's a there's a historical perspective also where if we look at sort of the way that these movements have played out in the past where the collapsing of sort of goals into one coherent movement often results in reducing the demands. And so if you think about sort of the deinstitutionalization movement in the United States, like absolutely we saw some of the largest, uh, most heinous institutions close, but those institutions were just rebranded into these sort of smaller, more decentralized um, public-private partnerships where maybe you have a, a system of group homes, maybe a, a network of inpatient hospital centers. And this is the kind of narrative that I think we often are going to see as a kind of decarceral policy proposal, which is a sort of systemic rebranding, because ultimately these systems of carceral confinement, um, as it stands, our state is constructed in such a way that it requires this kind of policy. I mean, even Skull, um, who Andrew Skull, who I referenced earlier, like his book, Decarceration, is about basically how during the early years of the deinstitutionalization movement, these commitments to decarceration um, were really just kind of the ball was dropped by policymakers that they said, okay, we're going to send people into the community. And then they never followed through on making sure that services and supports would be available. And I think, you know, it really, if you're doing this work and if you care about this stuff, it becomes a really important question whether there's room in the state at all to ever sort of have decarceral policies that actually achieve um, goals of abolition. Yeah. And I mean, I just want to say, like, this is a very, like, controversial, I, I don't want to say, like, so, you know, blow it out of proportion, but this is like, a, these are controversial things to be saying, because they challenge and um, point to, like, an existing tension around reforms and around people's best intentions to try and change the worst of the violence and because like there is like so much emerging work around um, the so-called U.S. about how we're going to deal with like shrinking the criminal punishment system. And by saying like pointing to the exact things that you're pointing to be, I think like we're saying that these things are very complicated. I think so much of our conversation today has been like actually as much as we want to be able to say, like, don't build jail, close the jail and do this instead. Like it's it's actually very complicated because violence is complicated and 
if we start with like just free them all, at least we have like a central demand to organize around that isn't just like how do we how do we, how do we build a better jail or how do we build something better than this? Right. Um, and one thing I kind of wanted to add also, I didn't know if we were going to go back to it, is it's really helpful that you used carceral humanism to frame this conversation, which is like a term that James Kilgore came up with, who has been writing about this for many years, um, specifically in a piece called Repackaging Mass Incarceration, um, referring to the idea that jails can become providers of mental health care and also specifically carceral sanism and ableism. I think these three kind of, along with like obviously carceral feminism, like Diana talked about, these three and four like phenomena, I think are helpful to structure the way we think about what we're opposing when we say like we oppose reformist reforms because they point to the fact that like the way society the government, the state think about and address disability at all is at its core violent and and inappropriate and gendered and raced and classed. And so I think like, I just wanted to kind of flag that I think even when thinking about decarceration, like acknowledging like these things like carceral humanism and carceral sanism and ableism are at play helps us be like, okay, this is what we're opposing. And this is like, why? Because at the root of it is like ableism. At the root of it is like patriarchy and cis-heteropatriarchy. So well said. Absolutely. I think, you know, Mon got to it. But yes, I mean, that's the thing. The state basically has two modes of um, dealing with disability, either completely ignoring it or criminalizing it or demonizing it in some way. Like the entire disability justice movement is about pushing back against this narrative that disability is a problem to be solved. And like, you know, as a disabled person, sometimes it's hard. It's like, it's like, yes, I want support with my disability, but I also want to just be able to live my life. And that's sort of like kind of what like, and that's the thing, the carceral sanism, the carceral ableism is just like, well, how like, you know, First, they pathologize people and then they criminalize them. And it's just like, you know, well, we've got to put them somewhere. And it's like in like, you know, either a hospital or a group home or a prison or jail. They have to be somewhere. They can't just, you know, like there's I always think about there's a poster that's like it's an anti-policing poster. And it says, what if you're on a bus and someone's talking to your to themselves and you just leave them alone and let them do that? And everyone gets to where they're going and everyone has a perfectly fine day rather than you calling the police and that always gets to me because it's like that's the idea it's like someone's talking to themselves i mean i mean that's not an automatic sign that there's going to be a problem and you just let it you know don't always have to criminalize everything and i think that's yeah no, absolutely. And I mean, you know, one of the ways that uh, Liat Ben-Moshe has uh, defined carceral sanism is that in the past. I, I really appreciate I have a quote here. Um, I think this is from this was a from a piece that uh, Ben-Moshe co-authored called Carceral Protectionism and the Perpetually Invulnerable. But in it, they write, quote, within a carceral protectionist framework, perpetual invulnerability is relationally applied. It's racially constructed, related to pathologization, 
parentheses, queerness, disability, madness, and deployed through criminalization. Carceral protectionism is about discourses of protecting the, quote, innocent from the, quote, dangerous body minds, and also from protecting people from their own danger and for their own good, including medication, psychiatrization, and placing in custody. And it's this real idea, you know, as we're talking about that these carceral logics and these kinds of carceral frameworks, whether it's sanism, humanism, feminism, ableism, um, these are essentially descriptive of, of certain ways that the state makes decisions about how to handle certain populations, how to certify certain population and, and populations as being either dangerous, not dangerous, welcome or unwelcome in the quote unquote community. And I think it's really important to sort of when we when we sort of talk about what our goals are, as we're as we were saying earlier, it's important to be on the same page, I think, with people you're organizing with, because what you what's what happens very easily is you could sort of come together around a reformist proposal and work with people, you know, maybe to pass a public option. Let's say you're you're doing healthcare organizing and you come together and you're you're working with all these people and you pass a public option. Well, you may have way more common in your organizing goals with people who are doing abolitionist organizing than with the other people you're working on on this reformist campaign, because at the end of the day, you know, if we're actually sort of seeking to to build these worlds that um, are not so brutal and cruel and harmful, then we not only have to sort of build new things, but as Ben Moshe uh, says, I think very well, we also have to be ready to destroy things. And we have to, I think some of us need to be, you know, willing to make decisions to not work with people who want to rebrand these institutions who, you know, work with people who want to broadly refuse carceral logics and look for ways to sort of collaborate between movements there rather than, I think, the kind of model of organizing around issues as it's very siloed. You know, you're sort of used to seeing like, okay, we have a health reform, so we're going to get kind of like all of the all of the uh, different health reform orgs together and everybody's going to kind of like come in with their own perspective on this one issue. You know, that's the kind of organizing that is perfect for neoliberalism because you're going to end up with these rebrands, these reformist reforms that are then sort of co-signed by like a political range of different groups with different goals who are all like, in theory, stakeholders in the same issue. But sometimes I think what's really important and rarely talked about is that simply being a stakeholder is no guarantee of any kind of politic. Like, being a stakeholder does not mean that you have a liberatory political goal in mind. And at the end of the day, when it comes to things like decarceration, that's incredibly important. Yeah. I mean, these, just like everything you said, there there was so much there. Um, and I feel like specifically this idea that like it does make these kinds of organizing models more vulnerable to co-optation and more vulnerable to neoliberalism, I think is a very apt point because um, it means and I think we've referenced it several times in this conversation, it means that um, jails or state-operated hospitals and psychiatric facilities or even to some extent like, um, you know, foster care homes and uh, schools become become places where like carcerality just exists. Like it, it's suddenly like there's no difference between freedom and like, incarceration because we've now muddied the line so much that like every space operated by the government is a carceral one. And that's the only way you can receive any kind of services. If you kind of concede or, or 
agreed to participate in the like carcerality of everyday life and like are okay with that happening. But I also think that these are really uncomfortable realizations, because especially for organizing. When you're talking about um, be about stakeholders, for example, I think it's really com- it's really complicated to come to the table, right? And uh, with like people who are formerly incarcerated, people who do use drugs, people who are sex workers, people who are disabled, and who are pushing for these jails, or people who are currently incarcerated inside somewhere like Rosie's and who are like, no, actually, I would prefer to be inside a better, nicer jail where I'm getting therapy. You know, it's really difficult to come to the table and say, this is not my vision. This is without invalidating Mm -hmm. the vision that everyone else has. Because again, like we're all kind of, we all care about economic and cultural transformation, just not in the same way. And also without kind of alienating some of the people who do have direct experiences and who are stakeholders. I think in the New York City borough-based jails fight, which directly led to this women's jail proposal, that was one of the most complicated aspects of the entire campaign. We were fighting against the four borough-based jails, which were being um, supported by people who were formerly incarcerated, people who had been impacted by the criminal punishment system in New York. And repeatedly they said, oh, your opposition your abolitionist opposition to these borough-based jails is an idealistic and unpragmatic one that doesn't care about the conditions that people who are inside the jail are actually facing, doesn't care about real solutions that can happen soon. Um, And by soon, they meant 2027, I guess. Um, (laughs) But that, that was the tension. And at that time, I don't think like that we were saying things as clearly as we're all saying them today, where oh, just because you're a stakeholder, just because you've had these experiences doesn't actually make it so that you have this liberating politic and that you actually believe in freedom all or that you're working towards freedom all. But at the time, like, yeah, we didn't know or think that. So it actually led to a lot of guilt and shame about not having not having more of that politic and not, you know, we were really concerned about not caring about the conditions and we were really concerned that what they were saying was right. So I think like, I just wanted to affirm that what you were saying is really true. And it, but when it comes to the actual organizing around like something like this Women's Justice Center or organizing around the borough-based jails, it becomes very uncomfortable. It becomes uncomfortable for the abolitionists who are trying to push for something bigger. It becomes uncomfortable for like reformists and people who are really invested in decarceration because they don't want to accept that their plans fall short of actual liberatory potential. And it's it, I think it actually this dynamic really disorganizes mm-hmm. like movements. No, I think I think you hit on something that's so crucial and difficult, right? Because obviously this kind of need to balance like the immediate and the long term is always going to be one of the most difficult questions if you have a kind of political praxis where you are pushing towards a kind of goal like free them all, because you have to hold these two things like simultaneously. And I think this is also really common if we think about sort of like healthcare reform, right? Like a campaign to expand Medicaid, you know, I think is not hurt by a campaign for Medicare for all, that there's a kind of complementary framework where there can be these movements, you know, that push for bigger, more sort of expansive, long-term liberatory goals. And I think 
a lot of, you know, the kind of organizing mindset is that we're we're all obviously hoping that we can all be on the same page today. But I think part of it is also sort of trying to, you know, resist austerity mindsets and sort of zero sum logics that sort of pushing for more expansive vision somehow takes away from dealing with immediate harms. And, and this is, I think, a kind of you know, it's a difficult balance that I think so many people right now are trying to work towards finding room for in their organizing because it's it's going to be important, I think, especially in the context of, you know, dealing with climate crisis or dealing with situations like um, incarceration or, for example, like congregate settings like nursing homes and things like that. You know, I think part of what you know, our our like sort of social and political machine pressures us into is like this mindset that there's going to be one right answer and not sort of many things that are going to bring us towards what is ultimately a goal and not a sort of policy goal, but like a broader goal about how we want to live and how we want to live together in a world. Yeah. And also like Mon was referred to the 2027 deadline. And like at the time, you know, a lot of the folks who didn't want the borough-based jails built were like, they probably won't close. They're not going to close Rikers in 2027. That's, you know, not going to happen. And it looks like it's not going to happen. And also just, I have to get this out. It just occurred to me. But, you know, uh, Mon was talking about better art on the walls. When I was in the state hospital, they actually went out and bought some nice art to hang up. And within days, most of it was stolen by the staff. So, wow. Yeah, just, yeah. Uh-huh. So, I mean, you know. Well, I think, you know, it's, I think recognizing resistance to plans like the feminist jail, you know, as a concept, like resisting to engage with these reforms in your organizing, I think, you know, it doesn't mean that it invalidates the experience no. of people who are doing that organizing, but it's important to have people who are saying, you know, stop building new prisons, in addition to people who are calling for reforms. And I think part of the way that these logics persist is because the idea of carceral protectionism kind of forces you to say there's only one solution and it's whatever is the most immediate. And that's kind of what this logic demands is actually that kind of immediacy that is part of how it perpetuates itself. Yeah, and I think also solidarity with Black liberation movements and Indigenous liberation movements and Solidarity with like poor people and trans people actually and like abolition calls on us to be kind of creative in the ways that we respond to these things without being like, you know, it's not a matter of being like, oh, I'm invalidating that person's experience, but more like I'm rejecting the premise on which our all of our experiences are being tokenized mm -hmm. to kind of prop up these like harmful and violent and carceral structures and and these like carceral logics, like they was saying. And I think like my thinking about this is still growing. But one of the things I've come to understand is that even this concept of like the directly impacted and like who who is it supposed to be at the table? Like I am. I completely believe that like people who have been incarcerated and who have survived incarceration and who have survived a psychiatric coercion should be at the forefront of creating solutions. And I also believe that like criminalization is actually universally impacting all of us um, in ways that, you know, I have friends who are being criminalized currently. I have friends who are receiving diagnoses that could lead to like them being violated in different ways. And how I've started to think about it is that I'm, 
I'm not going to concede the possibility of kind of liberatory solidarity with people who are incarcerated to like, yeah, carceral nonprofits or to the state. I, I think that like it's still possible to be like at the table with someone and tell them they're wrong and recognize that like we've been set up in this like structure by something more violent than just this this moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, it's, you know, I think part of it, too, is that one of the reasons why these disagreements can feel so alienating is because the pressure is so mu- is so high because these systems as they exist now are maximizing violence. They've been turned into these efficient machines for disciplining labor, disciplining behavior, disciplining, you know, gender presentation. Our our criminal system has a long history. Our our system of incarceration has a long long history that, you know, is is unfortunately at this point I think a structure that in the future is going to be one of the biggest fights to dismantle because it's something that is integral to the foundation of capitalism. And, you know, it's okay if, if your organizing is not sort of towards a free them all goal and you want to work on something immediate, but, you know, you have to recognize at the same time that, that these larger goals and these longer term goals, they don't take away from anything short term. If anything, it's it's crucial for those short term campaigns that are working on doing things for the immediate to have these longer term goals. I mean, what makes something look feasible other than it being, you know, proposed relative to something much bigger and more expansive that's also being pushed for? I mean, I think this kind of idea of feasibility towards the lowest common denominator towards the status quo as much as we can is one of the ways that hegemony perpetuates itself and these harms and logics of carcerality perpetuate themselves. And I think I, you know, I appreciate the discussion in in your piece, Mon, specifically around, you know, the word decarceration itself and and what that means as a strategy, because these are the kinds of things that I think are are just so important to do. To look at and tease out, um, you know, when we're looking at policy and trying to think, how does this, you know, abstract sort of framing that is going to come top down from the state um, materially, how is that going to affect my life? You know, I think these are the questions that are so important to consider. Yeah. And I, I for listeners, I don't know if this will be in the in the show, but I, I don't think also that we are all saying that. There, like I, I think by trying to be kind of compassionate towards where people are coming from, I don't think we're also excusing like unprincipled organizing or unprincipled demands. I think part of like understanding where people are coming from and and saying like they can ha- they they're like aiming for these like short term goals. Part of understanding that is also being able to criticize it. And I think just because I can understand why someone just came up with the concept of a feminist jail and a a trauma-informed jail and why like many people are pushing for a women's justice center in New York City and what they're identifying as the problem doesn't mean I think that they're right or that they're not driven by self-interest or that, that their analysis is on point. I can see like there being some similarities in what we're aiming for, but Overall, I think it's unprincipled, and I think we just kind of have to sit with that. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yeah. I mean, you know, the austerity brain and the carceral logics is just, yeah, feeds so much. And like, and I mean, that was the thing. It's like, I, yeah, I can appreciate 
where they're coming from. And not too long ago, before I became an abolitionist, I probably would have said, oh, this is a good idea. But, you know, no, it's not. And I'm going to continue to say it's not while recognizing and understanding that, you know, the state kind of sets up certain binaries and people sort of, you know, fall into those binaries. And sometimes they do have their own self-interest, like you brought up the carceral nonprofits, who are a lot of the people being involved in this. And I mean, I could sit there and be like, all right, I get where you're coming from, but no, you're wrong. And continue to beat the drum of spend the money in communities. Don't spend it on incarceration. Yeah, it doesn't matter what it costs. The goal is freeing everyone, free them all. It doesn't matter what it costs. Exactly. Maybe as a kind of last thing, if we could talk about some of the other campaigns that are popping up, like the one in New York, because you write, Mon, in your piece about um, a couple different things that are actually ongoing right now as well. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, there's a this proposal for the Women's Justice Center is very similar to a proposal in Austin, Texas, where they're also pushing for a trauma-informed jail, not specifically for people of marginalized genders, but, you know, as like kind of a mental health expansion. And both in the Teen Vogue piece and then another piece that I wrote for Inquest, I have talked about like mental health jail expansion as like corollary to gendered punishment and kind of like feminist-esque jail expansion. Another place where that's happening is Orange County, California, where the Stop the Music Coalition for several years has been fighting against a mental health jail expansion. The Orange County Board of Supervisors chairwoman had actually said that they need to have more psych beds inside the city. And that's basically where that plan came from. And their sheriff kind of affirmed this by saying that the Orange County Jail has become the de facto mental health hospital of Orange County. And so that's one place where that's happening. Another place is um, Santa Clara, where they've launched a campaign for the last year, I think, fighting mental health jail expansion also in New Orleans, where for years, literally many, many years, they've been trying to push against a mental health jail expansion. Um, It's obviously important to recognize that all of these proposals and and, um, all of these campaigns differ vastly in their goals. And, you know, everything we've said about decarceration and these nuances comes up when thinking about the ways that this is happening across many different cities. Not every campaign, not every coalition has the same analysis around mental health jail expansion or carceral ableism um, and carceral feminism that we've talked about today. But I think it's important to recognize that New York City's borough-based jails and the Women's Center for Justice are enmeshed in this like larger trend of jail expansion that is incorporating uh, progressive and like radical language to justify itself while pushing, you know, millions, if not billions towards expanding the capacities of these counties to hold people pre-trial. Yeah, and I think this, you know, talking about it as a trend, Mon, is so important. One of the sort of, you know, tropes of disability justice is sometimes people talk about disabled people being a canary in a coal mine. And we talk about these moments like what's going on in New York or these proposals for for things in Texas, California, Massachusetts, like that these are canaries in the coal mine. But you know, one of the things that like frustrates me about how we use that metaphor sometimes is that the canaries are down there. 
uh, in order to die for the mining company, in order to die for the mining company mm-hmm. to spend less taking care of the miners. You know, and these are the kinds of moments where, you know, if we think about um, what sort of the future of disability justice is going to be like, it's really important, I think, for disabled people who are organizing around disability justice to be incorporating, you know, looking at um, some of these sort of jail proposals that are essentially saying that like some of the only locales that the state is willing to spend money on investing in care is within a carceral context only. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah. And there's like, there's actually been, I mean, we're glad to see it. Like a lot of um, connections being made between abolition and disability justice lately. And um, where, where's the state putting the money in the carceral solutions, you know, and um, I think a lot of, you know, and like and that's actually how I came to abolition partially was through, you know, my disability experiences. And I think a lot of people, um, a lot of disability activists, you know, more neoliberal ones tend to like want to separate themselves out from <clears throat> those people. And but there is no separation. You know, it's like this could just be anyone. It's just, you know, the state will just keep expanding it's carceral reach until, you know, you know, I'm like, I mean, the thing is, is that while some people are more at risk, no one is truly safe. And um, I just want to like, I'm not going to get into it too much, but I just want to mention that, like, not only is this going on all over the place, but it's not really new. I mean, I think it's being framed in a little bit of a new way. But back in the 70s in Massachusetts, they wanted to open a... um violent women's unit at the state hospital to move some of their the uh, incarcerated women from their women's prison and it was like and like that was a the thing they were much more open about it that it was a violent women's unit which was going to like it was in response to a lot of um uh act prison activism especially post attica it was going to mostly be uh in, impacting like black women and um you know, gender non-conforming women and um, and probably, you know, and then obviously, you know, women with mental health issues. And in response, there was a coalition started called Coalition to Stop Institutional Violence that was made up of a number of groups, including um, the Mental Patients Liberation Front, which is still one of my favorite names. And um, they pushed back against it and they they built a really strong, like there's a chapter in, um, Emily Thuma's book, All Our, Tri- All Our Trials, Prisons, Policing, and the Feminist Fight to End Violence, all about how they pushed back and how they organized what they were called 10 taxpayer, um, 10 taxpayer groups, where groups of 10 taxpayers would get together and go and speak in front of um, Department of Public Health officials. And they, so I'm just going to read a quote. Um, one quote from one of the 10 taxpayer group meetings said, asking a woman to stop being violent when she's constantly the focus of daily violence within and outside of existing institutions is the same as asking her to commit suicide. Not only is there not a need for a center for violent women, there's a very real danger in creating one. And they were actually able to um, keep them from opening that unit. So, I mean... You know, so there is precedent both for this happening and for there being uh, organized resistance that stopped it from happening, you know, that shut it down, which is great for us, you know, to hold on to. 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's one of those things where if you go back and you start looking at the organizing that's happened in decades past against things like this, you see a lot of movements dealing with similar issues. I I pulled something that I thought you'd appreciate, Diana, which is from um, the Women's Prison Coalition newsletter, uh, spring 1978 edition. And so this was uh, about a campaign in California, and they say, once again, the law and order forces in California are pretending to solve the problems of poverty and crime by building new prisons. The CDC claims that new prisons are needed because existing prisons are overcrowded, run down, and located far from urban centers. But new prisons will not necessarily mean better prison conditions or the tearing down of old prisons. New prisons will cause more people to be locked up under the same intolerable conditions that exist now. And, you know, just to tie it into the the sort of framework that we talked about, which is like the, the process of building itself, like means that it's going to be filled. And it's important to sort of think of these things as, um, you know, ways that the state is not just spending money, but deciding to construct itself through the the sort of carceral logics of containment and and of needing to remove people in order to make a safe society instead of reconceptualizing what safety means which i think ultimately you know is is what abolition demands of us yeah that quote could have been written today i mean that's the thing. totally yeah 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 i mean yeah. it sounds yeah. like it's talking about the campaign that you know the 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 jail proposal that we just have been talking yeah. about but it's from 1978 yeah and it's from a different Different prison. Yeah. And it's a a prison, not a jail campaign. So, you know, and and this is stuff that, um, you know, just I think sometimes it can it it can be like overwhelming to look back and see like, oh, these things have happened before. But, you know, just as these are strategies that, um, you know, (laughs) politicians and liberals are going to try in order to rebrand. Um, over and over, these institutions that are fundamentally violent that we want to end, it doesn't mean that we can't sort of be inspired by the strategies that stopped them in the past as well and iterate on that um, in our own organizing now. Yeah. And I appreciate you both kind of naming that even as we see like the trend of we can like identify the trend of jail expansion. We also can see this as like a continuation of a long-standing effort and a long-standing logic of white supremacy. Um, And I think in New York itself, right, like Rikers itself and Rosie's itself was a response to something more violent, supposedly. And it was a response to um, calls for reform and calls for closure. And um, similarly, the Women's House of Detention, which I know, Diana, you have talked about a bit with me, um, was also designed as like a jail that would be for specifically people of marginalized genders. And it closed, I think, um, less than 50 years after it opened because it was so notoriously violent and it was so notoriously abusive that it couldn't even um, sustain. So it's it's honestly un- incredible to see nonprofits and justice labs and corporations push for something like this Women's Justice Center. It's like they've never taken a look at history. They have no concept of what happened before 2001. And that's why I think also we can identify it as opportunism. Well, before we wrap, are there any final takeaways or points that uh, either of you wanted to make? I guess I would just say that in terms of treating trauma, I just can't, I just don't see there's any way that um, a place where you're being forcibly confined can do that. And that also the types of treatment that best 
deal with trauma, I doubt are going to be treatments that are going to be available to folks there. And so I really just see this as just, it's just going to be another way of just sort of like trying to um, pacify people as much as they can until they release them back on the street with, with maybe slightly more skills and slightly more, you know, support than they had before. But I just don't see this as any as a situation that's going to work in the long run for the women that and gender expansive people it's supposed to be working for, um, even if it was a good idea in any other sense. Like even if it was done absolutely perfectly to the T, you know, that there's no way fundamentally that um, it's going to achieve what it's promising to be. Exactly. Yeah. And I think two things. One, that like these these proposals and the efforts that the kind of like community efforts to stop something like the borough-based jails or to stop this Women's Justice Center, I think are like important intervention points that give people the opportunity to be radicalized around things like disability justice. Because like so much of what we've said today is that at the root of it is how we think about health or how we think about what it means to be like mentally well or to be of like a sound body mind. And these, I think these moments where people start to get mobilized around something like a mental health jail expansion or a trauma-informed jail or like a so-called feminist jail are opportunities for people to be radicalized around what, what gender even is, what health even is. And I think that is what is like most um, exciting to me mm-hmm. about some of these campaigns. And the last thing I'll share is that one kind of ultimate sort of narrative that I think diminishes so much of this logic um, and that I think is really important for campaigns and organizers to internalize is that promises of better healthcare and better support cannot excuse the lack of that support right now. And in fact, undermine any care that the city is professing to have. And I think that has been a really powerful narrative for organizing around because if New York City, if Eric Adams and if New York State, if Kathy Hochul and all of the city council members care so much about providing a better um, systems and better care and more social workers and all of these things to people who are incarcerated inside the borough based jails, then they would be doing that now. They wouldn't suddenly be, become more caring in seven years. They would be doing that now when the crisis is at its worst level in like a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that they're not providing that care or letting people out now or doing anything about the fact that, you know, someone is dying like every month inside Rikers just completely undermines anything that the Women's Justice Center or the borough-based jails are supposed to promise. Yeah, absolutely. definitely. So I'll put, I mean, thank you both. Um, for coming on today and having such a wonderful and, you know, nuanced discussion of of this incredibly, you know, frustrating and, and sort of complex and spiraling issue, right? I mean, these kinds of, as as you're saying, as you were saying, Mon, you know, this is ultimately like we're having a conversation about what health is and like whether or not we can be healthy in a world that has prisons and jails that that prefers carcerality and confinement as as a kind of means of 
um, policing the population rather than finding ways towards the public health, towards like supporting the collective body and towards building, you know, means for people to survive. These, these are sort of the, the really important conversations that I think, you know, it, 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 it gives you, you know, a moment to react when these shitty proposals happen, but it also gives you a moment to think really creatively. I mean, I think one of the things I always think about um, is, Mon, you were involved in the um, eight to abolition campaign, which, you know, is ultimately in response to, um, you know, some sort of shitty liberal proposal, uh, the eight can't wait proposal that was put out in the wake of the the George Floyd uprising. And, you know, even though it was a re reactive moment of organizers basically being like, well, fuck you, that what you're proposing sucks. Here are eight points that are way better. You know, it is still a kind of moment um, where, it, it, you know, it, it does allow people to sort of be plugged in, to learn, to expand and grow their politics and their organizing towards, you know, bigger goals that probably um, are only going to strengthen the things that they were already doing. And and yeah, you know, these proposals are are frustrating and they can be depressing, but at the same time, they can be these these moments of galvanizing, you know, movements that can come together in order to sort of think towards a better um, and, you know, actually just future, whatever that actually means. Yeah. Um, I think it's been so refreshing to hear you both talk about some of these things in such a nuanced way. There's actually uh, a lack of spaces to have these conversations very honestly, even though they are like at the emerge, like they, these are like the most predominant and emerging tensions around like anti-jail and abolitionist pretrial criminalization organizing. Um, there's actually a lack of spaces where like people are honestly naming these tensions and being uncomfortable with the things that they um, force us to confront. So I really appreciate it. Well, thank you both for doing that with me today. Yeah. Yes, thank you so much for having us. Mon, Diana, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been absolutely wonderful. If you want to follow Mon and Diana, you can follow Mon on Twitter at semicool, that's C-E-M-I-C-O-O-L. And you can follow Diana at DianaJoy23. If you'd like to support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, and request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. And as always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Mm -hmm.